All right, well, good morning, Story Church. Good to see you. My name is Stephen. I'm the executive pastor here at Story Church. And just, uh, again, want to welcome you. Thank you for being with us this morning. It's a, it's a great day. I'm excited for what today means for my team. I'm from the Bay Area, so I'm, I'm super excited. Wow, there's more. I was expecting more booze. I, I put in my notes, pause for booze. But okay, that's great. So, but, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful. I want to honor God's word. So I'll, I'll zip this back up so we can focus on the right things this morning. <clears throat> Hey, before we jump into the sermon, uh, just want to do a quick Embark update uh, for us on what God's doing in our church. Um, this January, we, we actually were able to bring in over almost $5,000 more than what our budget is for the month, which if you've been, you've been following with us through Embark, yeah, you can clap for that. Historically, January is a really low month for us, and so um, we just have continued to see how God has provided through various means, but primarily through your generosity. Um, and we're, we're just excited to see what God's going to do through the rest of this year. And uh, there's some things that we're able to do uh, because of your generosity. Um, after enduring, I'm sure for a lot of us, discouraging monthly updates um, that were hard to hear as far as where we were at every month, like the tide has just has shifted and God is providing. And we're excited to upgrade some things on the stage, to get rid of all the cables that you have to walk around after service and um, upgrade some things in our kids' building and our playground and um, be able to invest in this place and in you because of God's generosity, ultimately through your obedience to be generous. And so uh, we just want to say thank you more than anything else and just praise God that we're able to do that um, this month. Okay, well, uh, this morning we're going to be in Galatians 2, uh, 15 through 21, as you just heard. And just to give a little bit of context, last week uh, we were in verses, uh, in verses specifically 11 through 14. Paul confronted Peter because of his hypocrisy. Because Peter essentially was afraid of what other people would think of him. And so as he entered into different spaces, he changed not only his behavior, but also what he said was true. So when he would hang out with the Jews, he would add extra laws. And he would follow along with their tendency to say that the gospel was not enough. But then when he would hang out with the Gentiles, he would say, no, the gospel, the gospel is enough. And he played sort of two sides. And it was causing a lot of damage. And so Paul didn't just confront him, but ultimately he went deeper in those verses and he explained what it means to be made right before God. And that's really what this passage is going to get um, even deeper into, justification. Um, but it's also going to answer some questions for us. Like, well, what, what happens when we are saved? How does our life actually change? Like, how do we not go back to where we were before as we are changed by Jesus? And then what does it actually mean to wrestle with not only past sins and shame, but, but current and future issues that we may face? And our passage really is going to answer these questions, and it's going to give us um, really three things. One is a gospel foundation. What can we build our lives on? What is good and right and true that we can trust? And number two, a gospel warning. What do we need to be on guard against? How do we need to be proactive in the way that we fight sin and are aware of our own proclivities? And then three, a gospel encouragement. What does it look like to actually live for Christ? How do we grow? How do we change? How does God do that in our lives? Okay, so starting with verses 15 and 16, Paul begins by rehashing the origin story and background of both himself and also those he's speaking to. He says, hey, we are Jews by birth. And really what he means here is that we all know the law. We're familiar with God's requirements of us. We're familiar with God's standards for human living. We were raised to submit to that law and use that law ultimately to evaluate ourselves and our standing before God. And then he says, we are not Gentile sinners, 
meaning that, hey, we didn't come from a pagan background where we are unfamiliar with who God is or where um, our life was totally separate from God's law. And so really what we see here is Paul speaking initially primarily to those who are prone to morally measure themselves and others because of the law. Because that, that is what the Jewish community was familiar with. What God set as a standard and then morally measuring both themselves and one another according to that law. So what does Paul say? He says, well, we know that justification does not happen by works and following the law. And so I just want to take some time in this first section just to talk about what is justification? What does that actually mean? What does it mean to be justified? Well, um, we've talked about it a little bit, but justification is a big word. It's not probably a a term that you, you use very often or hear used. But to be justified truly just means to be found in the right and to be freed of charges, to be cleared of charges as, as just. So inherently, it's this idea in, in the justice system of being declared right, that there is no issue, that you didn't do anything wrong, you are free and clear to go. And so there's this idea that there's something in the way. If we need to be justified, that there's something in the way. There's something that says we're not justified, and that's sin. And that's not just specific sins that we have committed. It's actually our hearts It's our our desires, our tendencies, the core of who we are. It's corrupted, and it's sinful. And God's word says that we're guilty. If if we're guilty of breaking even one part of God's law, then we're guilty of breaking all of it. And so there's no escape. God's standard of justice in Scripture is absolute. There's no kind of squeaking by or getting off on a technicality. If there's any hint of evil or wickedness in our hearts and our behavior and our minds, past, present, or future, then we fall into this category of, of, of being not justified, of being worthy of death and punishment. See, because we're, we're worse off than this sort of theoretical hint of sin person. Because when our intentions are corrupted and our desires are corrupted, it's not just our behavior. It's something we can't change. You can change your behavior, but you can't change the core of who you are on your own. And we know this. We hurt people. We hurt ourselves. And we know our morality is inconsistent and broken. It changes with different seasons and situations. We know ourselves. We're we're hypocrites by nature. James 2.10 says, even if we keep the law but fail in one point, we are guilty of all of it. And so it's important that we know this bad news, that this is our starting place, a guilty verdict. The judge has looked at our lives and said, nope, you're guilty. You can't go off free. You're not justified. You deserve death. So just like our baseline is a guilty verdict, just like these, Christian, these Jewish Christians in the New Testament, we are prone, like them, to measure ourselves, to look at, even though we know we don't deserve it, even though we know we're broken, we, we want to measure ourselves. We compare ourselves with others. We all know this. Whether you come from a religious background um, or you know, completely irreligious, for that matter, all of our hearts long for a way to know if we're measuring up and we need something. We all want something to, to, to sort of determine, am I good enough? Am I a good person? I, I believe person on this earth today has a set of moral standards that they determine and are, are correct for themselves, that they measure themselves and they evaluate other people by. This is just in our nature. There is no living where we have no moral standards. We all have something that we believe is right and good and wrong, And we measure ourselves by those right and wrong and and as well as other people around us. And so Paul's words here, I just want to make clear, they don't just apply to to, to the Jewish people who were raised in a culture and a society that taught them the law by birth, as Paul did. They apply to all of us. They apply to you and me. So with that context in mind, 
Paul reminds the church that we are not made right with God, nor do we have God's requirements and his law fulfilled in our works, that there is no way we can do that. It's just impossible. No one can be justified by their own works. Only by belief in Jesus Christ can we be justified. And so Paul really is giving here a reminder of the good news of the gospel, that we are broken, we are flawed, we can't save ourselves, but that we have good news in Jesus because of what he's done for us. And it is good news because of how far off we are and how incapable we are of changing the core of who we are and overcoming a law that we've broken, even if in a little bit, we've broken all of it. There's no hope for us. Only by God's grace is the Christian saved, forgiven, redeemed, made new, and ultimately justified. This is all because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is a huge relief that we should be able to hear this and, and breathe out because the love of Jesus towards us. And so this is our first, our first point this morning and that this is our gospel foundation. No one is justified by their works, but only by faith in Jesus. And I just want to say, this, these are words, if you, if you did grow up in church, if you've been at Story Church for a while, it just can sound sort of like rote and like, yeah, 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 I know these things. It doesn't mean anything, but this is huge. And we're, here, we're going to see more throughout the rest of this passage, ways in which this truth hits us that should deeply encourage us, deeply lift our spirits, and ultimately motivate us to follow Jesus all the more. Okay, so our second section here in verses 17 through 19. So Paul first gives us that foundation. He reminds everyone of the good news that you can't justify yourself, you're broken, but God ultimately has. And you can, have, you can be justified by faith, just by believing in Jesus and what he's done for us. So then he addresses two people in these next few passages. First, he addresses the Christian who who kind of goes on sinning lawlessly after being saved. And then he also addresses the Christian who goes back to the law, who tries to go back to those old ways of evaluating and measuring themselves by the law. So let's look at verses 17 through 19 together on the screen or in your Bibles. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I build, rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So first, Paul addresses the Christian who kind of goes on sinning unabashedly after receiving the grace of God. Since we have been made right only in Christ, not of anything we've done, kind of the question is, well, doesn't that enable sin? Someone can just take that grace that God's given and just kind of go on living however they want. And even more so, he poses in verse 17, if we believed and proclaimed ourselves to be justified in Christ, doesn't that sort of, and and then we're found to be kind of godless people and we go on sinning all of the more, doesn't that sort of make Jesus an enabler of evil because he gives us that grace first? And he says, of course not. Look at this quote uh, with me by John Stott. Paul's critics argued like this, your doctrine of justification through faith in Christ only, apart from the works of the law, is a highly dangerous doctrine. It fatally weakens a man's sense of moral responsibility if he can be accepted through trusting in Christ without any necessity to do good works. You are actually encouraging him to break the law, which is a vile heresy, here's a big word, of antinomianism. People still argue like this today. If God justifies bad people, what is the point of being good? Can't we just do as we like and live as we please? And Paul says ultimately, no, of course not. We can't blame Jesus for our sin before or after Christ, and we are ultimately responsible for our our own behavior. But more importantly, he makes the point that 
not only should we claim Christ, but we, we have to actually have change in our lives. This idea that you would claim Christ and your life would just go on with no change whatsoever. He says, that's absurd. That is not how it works. Because salvation is not just a legal change. It's not God, just God saying that our standing before him on paper has changed. It's a permanent, radical, and drastic change in our hearts of who we are. And so this idea that, that Christians can just abandon God's morality fully and live however they want, this is false. And Paul is clearly saying that is not how this works and nor how it should be. In verse 18, Paul speaks of the Christian who goes back to the law, now that he's talked about the Christian who kind of goes on sinning. Paul provides this metaphor of rebuilding what was torn down, which I do think applies to both of these areas of the Christian going back to former sins, but also specifically here, returning to the life of legalism and law-bound self-evaluation apart from Christ. See, if we rebuild those structures, if we attempt to live bound by on our, ultimately live bound by our, our own sense of morality or God's law on our own, we're not following Christ anymore. We're tethering ourselves to something else, to legalism, to some sort of self-justification on our own. But any attempt to measure or evaluate ourselves in our own strength, that is ultimately anti-gospel. That's what Jesus came to break apart. What has been torn down is these structures that, that make us feel small and make us feel incapable of being saved because we are. Jesus came to tear those things down and give us life in him. And so to live that way is like rejecting God's grace. It's like saying, that's not enough. I need to go on my own and I need to prove my own worth before you. Paul says in verse 19 that a true Christian dies to the law. This idea of replacing an attachment to the law, the law being this thing that undergirds your life and attaching ourselves to Christ and his worthiness, and his perfection. See, the temptation for the Galatians here was to rebuild the law in place of the gospel, to be saved by Jesus, and then immediately create their own version of religion, where they tried to evaluate and justify themselves and, and get some sense that they could be made right before God, be accepted by God, be good enough by God. And this is what Peter was doing when Paul confronted him. He, with one hand, he was holding up the gospel and saying that ultimately Jesus saves me and the word justified in him alone. But then with the other hand, he added all these other laws and requirements of food and practice and said, well, these are also required to be saved. And this is ultimately why Peter was called out by Paul because he was being a hypocrite and he was doing exactly what Paul is talking about here. Remember, this is the same letter. These aren't like disconnected ideas. This is just right after Peter was confronted. And so Peter was doing exactly what Paul says. He was rebuilding what he had apart from Christ before, again, afterwards, creating ultimately a false gospel. So rather than placing the law at the center of Christian living, Jesus is at the center. For we died to the law, is what it says. The law indicted us, it proclaimed us guilty, and therefore we deserved punishment for what we've done. We deserved death, ultimately. The law proclaims us dead, but because of Christ, where the law judged us as dead, Christ saved us, and we died to that law so that we could live to him, is what it says. So we're dead to the law, but we're alive to God. Our relationship to those legal requirements, it's no longer bound anymore. It can't even be, because we died to it. It can't have that power over us anymore. See, it says we've been made alive in Christ in its place. So Paul is making two simultaneous realities for us clear here. So the first one, as it says in Romans 6, we must not continue to sin that grace may abound. Though we're dead to sin and to the law, 
that doesn't mean that sin can just be this thing we engage with freely and take advantage of God's grace to us. But it also doesn't mean that we can ignore God's righteous commands. Number two, we're no longer bound by our past sins or the law. In God's eyes, those things don't define us. They don't measure us. They don't, they're not a source of evaluation for how he sees us at all. The record of your wrongs has been cleared, and it doesn't exist anymore. We're both freed from sin to live for Jesus and freed from the law that condemns us. And this is a lot of theological talk and a lot of kind of Bible verses here that can kind of get jumbled up. And so I just wanted us to think in kind of some simple terms, visual terms for us, in terms of a weight and a mirror. So your sin was a weight that you carried by yourself, a weight that you were enslaved to, that followed you everywhere, that discouraged you, that shamed you, that pulled you down. And the law is a mirror. It serves to expose your sin, to show you where you have erred, and ultimately to demonstrate the inconsistency between your life and what God's righteous rules are. A double burden, one of a sin, a weight that we carry, and then the second of a law that's constantly making us look at ourselves and realize how broken and messed up that we are. Jesus came and took that weight off of your shoulders and said, you don't have to carry this anymore. And then he took that mirror and he shattered it and said, I don't want you looking at yourself constantly, evaluating yourself and to try to measure up. He wants you to look at him now and see him and know that he loves you and has brought you in and accepted you and saved you. See, Paul's main point in these verses is to warn us of a tendency to take that weight that Jesus has taken and just put it right back on and spend the rest of our lives walking around with it or to go back to the store and buy another mirror and set it in front of us and just stare at it all the time and constantly try to be good enough and try to curate and manage our image and how we look and our behavior, thinking that maybe somehow we can be good enough for God. Why would we rebuild that? That's the old way that life was before Christ. Why would we rebuild that awful framework of living that ultimately just leads us to carry weight and feel tired and discouraged and frustrated and then to hold up to ourselves an impossible standard that we could never meet to feel discouraged and then to kind of create this life where we're just constantly trying to earn, constantly trying to be good enough. That is what God has torn down, what he smashed, what he removed so that you could be freed. Living that way ultimately just leads to death and discouragement and that's exactly what Jesus came to save you from. So our second point this morning from Paul is a gospel warning. Don't recreate the life of self-justification and sin slavery that you lived before Jesus. Jesus came to save you from it. Don't put it back on. Okay, so first, Paul reminded us of the gospel, a simple and just beautiful explanation that salvation is through Jesus alone and by faith alone, that we're made right and we're declared clean and free of all charges because of what Jesus has done. That's the gospel foundation. But then he also gives us a warning because we have a tendency to just go back to the way we were before, to put on the weight of our sin, to go back to the ways that we lived before Jesus, and then to go back to a a kind of religious, moralistic mindset and lifestyle where we try to be good enough for him and good enough for other people. Both of these go against what Christ has done for us. So that was our gospel warning. Don't rebuild what's been torn down. So in light of that gospel foundation and this gospel warning, Paul finishes with gospel encouragement 
of what's next. Okay, if that's true of me, and this is what I need to be aware of and what I need to be on guard against, what's next? What do I do? How then do I live? How does my life change after being saved by Jesus? The good news of the gospel here, it goes beyond justification, beyond a legal change in how our standing is before the Lord, because God has a game plan not just to change that, but to change your heart, to change your life, not just your legal record. Verse 20 says that not only have you died to sin and the law, but you've died with Christ, and you have a new life. Who you were is no longer here. I'm not who I was, and I'm not alone, because Christ lives in me. The Holy Spirit dwells within me, changing me, and making me new. So the life that I live now is not alone. It's not on my own, because it's done in Christ and by faith in him. This is so much better than having your weight and your baggage and all that other stuff removed from you and then just being left alone to figure it out. Kind of this idea of like a second chance. Look at what Romans 6 tells us about new life in Christ. This is Romans 6, verses 6 through 14. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So you have a new life now. Your old self, your old life is gone. This is ultimately what baptism illustrates when we take someone into the water and bring them out, that God's washed us clean and that it's not just that he's forgiven us, but that we're given new life in him. So how is it possible that we can live by faith and not on our own? How can we pursue holiness and put away our evil ways without becoming legalistic? It's all because of God's love for us. He died in your place. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. See, you weren't justified by a judge sitting at a desk, stamping something, hitting a gavel and saying, all right, we'll, we'll let him go free. We'll let her go free. And hopefully they don't screw it up. I'm giving them you know, a second chance. You were justified by someone who stepped into that courtroom where you were about to go on death row. And he said, I'm going to take it for him. I'll take the punishment if you let him go free. Totally different. Being pardoned and being rescued are not the same thing. This is really, really important that we actually see this and we think, we think about our relationship with God and our salvation in these terms because having your record expunged and just sort of a clean slate given to you and then being kicked out to go figure it out for yourself is not the same thing as someone loving you and dying for you in your place. This, this makes it all the more incredible that both of those things are true of us. We've both been declared righteous and someone has taken our place and died for us. See, in the world, as I was thinking about this, the idea of a second chance, 
we don't get a lot of second chances. I wanted to go down a rabbit hole using a movie illustration, but my, my wife always tells me that I get too focused on the illustration, and then I just get excited about talking about it and not actually about the story, so I cut it out just because her voice in my head gave me wisdom as I was writing this. I didn't even have to ask her because I knew what she was going to say if I practiced it for her. But this idea of a second chance, we don't get second chances very often, do we? My people don't give us second chances. Bosses don't give us second chances. That doesn't really happen. But even when you do get a second chance, what happens when you fail? When you break your promise that you made? There's no more chances. Trust is lost. It's broken. You get dumped. You get fired. You get arrested. You get cut loose. People ghost you. They don't want anything to do with you anymore. If they even give you a second chance in the first place. There is a profound difference between being given a second chance and love. Because second chances come with skepticism. Someone kind of folding their arms and saying, all right, I oh, hope you don't do this again, but we'll give you, we'll give you a try. We'll give you sort of a, a second lease, and, but if you screw this up again, like you're done. But love, love never ends. Love is beyond second chances. Look at what 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8a says about love. Love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I mean, this is the perfect form of all morality, the perfect example and model of all that is good and right, and the source of all that is good is God, right? We would agree with that. The the perfect, I'll say that again, God is the perfect form of all morality, the perfect example and model of all that is good and right, and ultimately the source of all goodness. This is our God. So when we read about love in God's word, it means that God is the perfect form and perfect version of that. Or we may read these verses, you know, in like a, a service about marriage or at a marriage conference, or we read about these sort of in a way for us to imitate. This is, this is what's ultimately perfectly true about God. So even just looking at these verses again, that God does not, is not irritable with you. He doesn't get, he's not resentful towards you. That he bears all things perfectly. He believes all things. He hopes all things. Hopes for the best in all things. Endures through all things. And that love never ends. Do you believe that that's true about how God loves you? Not that God is capable of that because he's God. But that God actually loves you that way and sees you that way. And is that perfectly patient with you. And doesn't get disappointed at you and angry at you. There's no irritate. He doesn't get irritated, resentful, burnt out. He doesn't give up on you. There isn't this idea of every time you mess up that he gives you a second chance and kind of leans back and goes, man, I'm giving him so many chances. Hopefully he doesn't screw this one up again. That God never, ever feels that way towards you. Do you believe that? God's love for you never ends. It's not fickle. It's not conditional. Even though that's often how we experience love from pretty much everyone around us and how candidly we probably love other people. It's real. It's lasting. You can take it to the bank. And that gives us a great deal of peace. Because God loves you because he chose to, not because of anything that you've done or anything you could do. He saved you because he loves you. And he's always with you and will never break his promises. Do you know we talk about God's love in Story Kids down the way here? 
This is from the Jesus, Jesus Storybook Bible. This is how we teach our kids about what God's love is. It says, you see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children yearning for a home. I mean, this is beautiful. We all know how hard it is when someone gives up on us. And we've probably experienced someone just disappointing us over and over. And we just, we don't trust them anymore. And that relationship is broken. We're so marked by our own brokenness and other people's brokenness that it's so hard for us to actually believe that God does that for us, that God loves us this way. Deep down inside my own heart, it's just so hard to believe that God hasn't saved me and then the rest of my life is an opportunity for me to make it up to him. That, That God stood in my place and declared me righteous and gave me a second chance and now I have however many decades that I have left to just not screw it up. It's so hard to not think that way. That's just baked into who we are because that's how our world works and candidly, that's how we work. But this idea that God never gives up on us, pursues you perfectly, that every time that you err, every time that you make a mistake, every time you do something that you told God you wouldn't do again, that there's this perfect grace and mercy that's just available to you time and time again, that is how we can change. That is how we can actually grow. No, I think the reason why it's so hard to not think legalism is going to be part of following Jesus, because how else can we think? How else can we operate? Is because no other person, no other place in life treats us this way. There's always some condition. There's always some, well, if we go too far, it's over. And so we have to continually take ourselves back to the feet of Jesus, back to the gospel, to be reminded of who God is and what he's done for us. And that that peace that, that comes from being loved perfectly forever and it not being from anything that you've done or anything that you can ever do is the only place that we can grow. It's the only place that we can actually pursue the Lord and change because we're not afraid of repercussions and we're not afraid of measuring up. We're not afraid of matching some timeline and we're not comparing ourselves to other people and where they are in their walk with the Lord. We're just genuinely responding to who God is and what he's done for us to be more like him and asking him to help us grow and to change us. Verse 21 closes out our passage this morning in this way. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is just another, it's kind of a cap on the, on the end of this whole gospel narrative this morning. You can't break or screw up the grace of God, because if you did, and if you could, then Christ would have died for nothing. You don't have to be afraid of losing your salvation, of losing this idea of standing before God or losing his love, because if that were true, then Christ dying for you, sacrificing himself in your place, would have been potentially a waste, because all of us have and will do something that could make us feel like we lose God's favor. This is what it means to rest in Christ. We rest in who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. This idea that we didn't do anything to contribute to it, to cause it, or to even encourage it. And because of that, we also can't do anything to undo it, to break it, to jack it up. You can't lose what was purchased through the death of Jesus Christ. So we can't live in light of who we were and carry the burden and weight and shame of who we were before him because Jesus has made us new. You haven't been given a second chance in Jesus. God doesn't do second chances. God does a new life, a new person, total makeover. 
God didn't save you and kick you back on the street to sort of figure it out and hope that, hey, here's a Bible, here's a church, go figure out what, what it looks like to, to make good on what I've done for you. You know, going back to this like, idea of, of the legal situation of someone, even, even if we could imagine the unfathomable scenario of someone who's about to be put on death row is clearly guilty, and then Jesus walks in and says, nope, I'll take his place, put my name on the record, and let him go free. Even if we can imagine that such an impossible scenario that would never happen today with anyone but Jesus Christ. In that scenario, someone's just kicked onto the street to go figure it out and hope that they don't screw it up again and hope that they don't end up in jail again or get arrested again. But God doesn't do that to us. He doesn't kick us to the street and say, all right, I did this for you, now figure it out. God puts you into witness protection. (laughs) He gives you a new name, a new passport, a new job, a new house, a new place to live where everything is new, everything is different. It's a full and complete change of your life. It's not a second chance. It's a new life. And you're not on your own because Jesus is with you always. And you can't screw it up. You can take that to the bank. So this is the gospel encouragement that we see in Galatians 2 this morning, that because of God's love, you've been given a new life. You've been loved and you've been given a new life. So just to recap for us momentarily, God has shown us that, number one, no one is justified by their works, that only by faith in Jesus can we be saved and justified, and that we should be freed by that reality. That's, that, should, that should sink deeply into us and create peace. And then two, because of that, we have to be careful. We have to be on guard that we don't create again or recreate or rebuild a way of living that is an attempt to self-justify by his law or anything else, nor would we go back to the way that we lived before him and just pursue sin all the more like it doesn't matter. And then thirdly, ultimately, that we can rest in God's love and that because of it, we actually have a new life in Christ. So if you're not a believer this morning, I hope what you hear here is really is ultimately just the gospel, dissected and broken up into, into profound ways and highlighted in probably all the concerns that we all have as human beings that no, you can't be enough. Yes, you are broken and yes, you need saving. And yes, there is a way for you. And it's a way that is not of anything you've done. God loved, was, loves you, died for you, and wants to give you a complete and new life, not a second chance. And that nothing you've done before is gonna hold any, any of God's love back and nothing that you'll ever do in the future can tarnish it. That's real love, it's genuine, and it's available to you. So I'd encourage you, if that's where you are, if you're not a believer, you can walk freely into that. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to inventory your past or present to see, well, what things should I kind of clean up a little bit or fix before I can come to Jesus and, and be saved by him? You just come to him. He saves you. He'll change everything. And so I just encourage you, if that's you this morning, if there's any, anyone here or anyone listening that's just holding back because of your past sins and your shame or this idea that you don't think you're good enough, I hope you hear from God's word this morning, that is not the gospel. That's not how it works. Yes, what you feel is true. You, you do carry shame and you aren't good enough. And Jesus wants to come and just take all of that, clean it up and save you. So we'd love to talk with you if that's, if that's you. After service, you can go in, in the second half of our service to someone in the back for prayer. Come to any one of our staff members or elders. We'd love just to hear your story and talk with you. Don't delay. Don't wait. For the Christians here, how do we apply this? Like, what does this look like practically? You know, these are good theological truths that we need to believe, but I know oftentimes we wonder, okay, well, what's next? What do I need to do? How, how, do, how does this actually impact my day-to-day life tomorrow and Tuesday? So in Galatians so far, we've talked about legalism a lot. It's come up a ton. 
And this passage certainly addresses it as well. We have to be careful not to measure ourselves up against the law for terms of self-evaluation or looking at our spiritual performance. But Paul also, as we saw, highlights other equally egregious dangers, specifically in verse 18, this idea of rebuilding the life we had before God. So how do we change? And then what does that look like to live in Christ? What is that new life? I just want to spend some time closing us out talking about this. Death to sin and new life in Jesus means that sin no longer controls us. It doesn't mean that sin is not in your life anymore or that you don't have any temptations or you don't have any issues, but it means that we have a new ability by God's grace to disobey our sinful desires, to disobey our sinful passions, that we don't let sin reign in our lives, control us. As we saw in Romans, we don't present our bodies, as it says, instruments for unrighteousness. Instead, we choose to be instruments for righteousness, for goodness. We're changed, and now we respond to what God has done by saying no to sin. But more specifically, there's a sense of responsibility and intentionality that we saw in Romans 6. We're not, we don't present ourselves to sin. Here's a quote by George Mueller that I know one of our elders, Ken, is going to be really excited about. Because <clears throat> he quotes George Mueller probably every time I talk to him, much less preach. It says this, There was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, tastes, and will died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame, even of my own brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved to God. When we die, we die to ourselves. We don't just die to our past sins or maybe one specific thing we did that carries us or that weighs us down. We surrender all of who we are, our opinions, our preferences, what we think is good and right. We take all of that and say, I want to, take, I want to throw it all to the side and say, God, you show me. How do I live? What's right? We study God's word. We get in community with other believers. Our life becomes about wanting to love God and please him, not to earn his favor, but because he's changed us. And we don't want anything to do with who we were before. So some examples for us from God's word. We don't give ourselves to sexual sin, pornography, adultery. We don't have sex outside of marriage. We don't do sex, anything sexual outside of God's design of marriage between a man and a woman. We don't give ourselves over to debauchery. This is the sin of excess. So drunkenness, indulgence in drugs, or anything that can cause somebody to lose control of their faculties, obsession. We don't give ourselves over to dishonesty, cheating, lies, gossip, slander. We don't give ourselves over to impurity, foul language, crass humor, bitterness, grumbling, wrath, anger. And this is not an exhaustive list, but these are things that we are aware of, that we have a tendency to, to do. These are issues that we may all have in one way or another. But there's, these are things that we refuse to do as we once did. Instead of allowing these things in our lives and then just feeling guilt about them and shame about them, we resist them. We say no to them. We fight them. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do that, that our new life in Christ, Christ in us, allows us to do that in a way we couldn't do before. We could only modify our behavior before, but we couldn't change. So do you understand what God's word is saying here? He's not saying to clench and resist sin and temptation when it comes, to kind of muscle your way through situations and that, that you know are going to kind of trip you up. Here's what God's word says. I just want to read us a bunch of scripture that God just gives us about what it looks like to change. This is from, um, from Proverbs 4, 14 through 15. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. 
Second Timothy 2.22 says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So these verses are really clear. How do we deal with sin and temptation? I want you to hear this. The Bible does not say to resist temptation. The Bible says to flee temptation, to avoid it. Don't pass near it. Don't test the waters. Don't put yourself in a situation where you know you're going to be tempted. Don't give the devil an opportunity. This is totally different than the idea of resisting, this idea of kind of white knuckling, trying to, oh, I, I want to do this, or I'm in this situation, and I, I feel, feel you know, temptation, and I'm trying to like resist it. We're not great at resisting temptation, whether it's a piece of cake in front of you, or it's a situation if you're an alcoholic and someone putting a glass in front of you, or it's sexual sin and you're sitting at night with a computer by yourself. We are not great at resisting temptation because we're broken and we're frail. So the Bible tells us to flee it. We change the way we live so that we do not go near the things that are going to tempt us. We make drastic changes in our lives. I'll just say it for myself, and if you've listened to the podcast, I've shared my own um, history of sexual sin. I, I've changed a lot about what I listen to, what I watch, what I read, because it's not worth it. I don't want to waste my time watching junk with, with, with nudity or anything inappropriate like that. I want to pursue Jesus, and I don't want to play some sort of mind game where I put myself in situations where I test how strong I am or how good I am at saying no to things. I, I want to change my life. I don't want to waste my time with that. I want to pursue Jesus. I want to know him. I want to be more like him, and I want him to change me. And so I don't want to be an idiot and go to the very places that I know will tempt my own sin, my own past issues that'll poke at those things. I want to, I want to pursue good things and run away from that and not even waste my time playing around with it. And so this is what God's word says for all of us. I think sometimes we, we feel like change is hard when we follow Jesus because we believe what God's done for us. And then we don't actually change anything about the way we live. We say, God saved me, and then, okay, here's all these things he tells me I need to change in that are good and right and true. Here's what his word says. And we just sort of like bang our heads against the wall with this list of things going, wow, I see inconsistencies. God's word says not to do this, but I do it anyway. God says I need to live this way, but I'm not living this way. And we just try to modify our behavior by our own willpower, or we hide it when we're not because we don't want other people to see us as frauds. And we waste so much time in our walk with the Lord essentially on our own, trying to be good enough just by our own mental fortitude and willpower, which we know is weak, rather than looking at our lives and saying, wow, like that George Mueller quote, everything needs to change. I need to, everything needs to be reevaluated. The people that I'm around, the places that I go, the things I watch and listen to, the way I spend my time, the way I spend my, my, my thinking time and mental time, the way I spend my money, how I use my phone and devices. I mean, everything needs to be opened up and to, to, to answer the question, what does it look like to live wisely? How can I flee foolishness and sin and temptation so God can grow me and change me? That's how we change. And again, it's so important to say this because even in saying that, it can just immediately lead to another form of legalism where we're just, okay, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna do all these right things. But the point is, this is made possible because we're not afraid of measuring up anymore. Because God's grace and mercy and love has been given to us. 
So instead of giving sin an opportunity, instead of sort of seeing how close to the line we can get or what, what we can get away with or testing how strong we are, we pursue holiness and we flee foolishness. God renews our minds and he actually changes us from the inside out. We speak the truth and we don't sin in anger. We respond to our enemies with kindness. We choose to be tenderhearted and forgiving towards others as Christ has been to us. We work honestly, we speak truthfully, we live graciously, and we use self-control to say no to our sinful passions and desires. We trust ultimately that God's way is better for us, that it'll actually give us joy. And we look to live like Jesus and treat people like Jesus treated us. See, the beauty of justification by faith that we see in this passage is this. The gospel frees us from the fear of losing what we didn't earn and disappointing a God that we can't impress. So we rest in our salvation and we live for Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll read that again. The gospel frees us from the fear of losing what we didn't earn and disappointing a God that we can't impress. Then we can rest in our salvation and live for Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how we can change, because God has changed us. He has saved you. He has changed your legal standing before him, but even more so, he's given you a new life, that he goes with you, he helps you, he helps you see truth, he helps you follow him. In Jesus, we do not have a second chance. We have an utterly and completely new life, and God has given us everything we need in him and in his word to live for him and to be changed. Pray with me. Father, we ask that, I ask that you would help these truths to sink deep into our hearts. It's so easy to get caught up in just trying to be good enough, thinking that, that salvation is merely a second chance and we have years and years of our lives to be good enough, to be better than other people, and, and maybe you'll love us because of how hard we work, how much we read our Bibles, how generous we are, how holy we are, how sinless we may be seen by other people. But God, you haven't given us a second chance. You've given us new life. You sent your son to die in our place, not so that we could just go on living like nothing changed and not so that we could go on and, and try to earn what you died to save us from, but you saved us so that we might be freed in you, we might have peace in you, we might be relieved of that weight that we all carry around. We wouldn't have to stare into a mirror constantly and just see how broken and frail we are. Instead, we can look to you and trust that you're changing us and that you're growing us so, Father, would you help us to live in what can be a, a tension of sorts, both that we have grace and mercy in you and that nothing we ever have done or could ever do could make us right before you. The tension between that truth and reality and the reality that you've called us to change, to live for you, Lord. And so would you help us to rest in the gospel, rest in what you've done for us, Lord. And would you help us to be wise and discerning and not foolish in how we live would we engage and utilize and respond to this newfound ability, this new life you've given to us that allows us to actually change, to say no to sin, to say no to foolishness, Lord? Help us not to be idiots and fools that go back to the same situations and things and places that we know will draw us into sin and then be questioning and asking why you haven't changed us, Lord. Would we trust that slow work of sanctification that you're doing in our lives, Lord? And would we follow you and follow your word and pursue you 
that you might change us and be glorified as we live as examples to all those around us, not of awesome Christians who did anything to be anyone, but of people who have testimonies of salvation that's only because of your love that's so mighty and beautiful, and lives that are changed not because of works and and effort, but ultimately because of your love for us and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit in our lives and the wisdom that you've given to us in, our, in your word, Lord. Would we, would we do that? Would we live for you and show what you are like to all the world, Father? Amen.